0: You're listening to an Ono Media podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and here's an update to the Oxford High School shooting from 2021. And you guys, I struggle so much when I bring you mass shootings. You really can't give more weight to one murder than another murder. They're all horrible. But there's just something about a kid that's showing up for school to take that stupid math test or they're there with their minds so preoccupied with other thoughts and then that safe community that they have is just shattered. But it seems in this case, the kids could see the cracks in their safe community And some adults didn't heed the warnings, which makes this just somehow seem worse. It's just tough, but let's give it a go. And it's clear that the extreme circumstances that Ethan Crumley was being raised amongst were having an effect, and that aided in the November 30th, 2021 shooting. Ethan's the only child to Jennifer and James Crumley. He'd lived in Florida and Washington, and when he was around nine or ten, the family settled in Michigan. It seems Jennifer and James felt that the young Ethan could pretty much just watch after himself, and they would leave him alone for hours while they visited bars in the downtown Lake Orion area. The absentee parenting was so frequent that a neighbor eventually filed an anonymous complaint with Child Protective Services, but the outcome of her complaint was never provided to her. Well, in 2016, Jennifer wrote a letter to then-president-elect Donald Trump. In the letter, she wrote that she was not a racist, but that she couldn't find a way to trust Hillary Clinton, who was the Democrat that had been running against Donald Trump in that election. She also wrote that she was a feminist who valued the LGBTQ community. Her plea in the letter was for Donald Trump to end Common Core because her son was struggling with learning that way in public school. So for those of you who don't have kids in school or didn't experience Common Core, it's kind of a controversial education practice. It was adopted back in 2010. And you've got some parents who love it, and just some parents who hate it. And obviously, Jennifer landed in the camp of hating it. She then went on to sign the letter with some words that I'm not going to repeat on the podcast, but here is the basic concept. The signature said, hardworking, middle-class, law-abiding citizen who is sick of getting effed in some body part, and that she would rather be grabbed by the P word. Okay, I include this just so that you can get an idea of what this mother is like and what this 10-year-old is engaged in. So let's fast forward. We'll go to the weeks leading up to the November 2021 shooting. Okay, Ethan is clearly not doing well. He had a good friend, but that friend had moved away from Oxford High School in that fall of that year. And Ethan had noted and told people that he felt very isolated. And then his family dog died. And prosecutors explained during one evidentiary hearing that when Ethan had told his parents he was struggling with depression from COVID lockdowns and his dog dying and then his friend leaving, that Jennifer had just laughed at him and told him to suck it up. He also said his mother told him he didn't need mental health counseling. During this time, Ethan's isolation seemed to be made more prominent by his parents' behavior. State prosecutors said that Ethan's parents would spend several nights a week for hours at a time at the barn with their horses, and that would just leave Ethan alone at home. And prosecutors also stated that Jennifer was having extramarital affairs. Okay, that's plural, more than one affair. And that she would spend her remaining amount of non-working time engaged in those affairs. So basically, they're contending she's not really being a mother at all. Well, Ethan began journaling disturbing thoughts. On one page, he wrote, I will cause the biggest school shooting in Michigan's history. I will kill every effing one I see. I have fully mentally lost it after years of fighting with my dark side. My parents won't listen to me about help or a therapist. Then another page had help written in big, bold letters. And underneath that was written, I have zero help from my mental problems and it's causing me to shoot up the effing school. And then on another page of the journal, it was written, The first victim has to be a pretty girl with a future so she can suffer like me. And below that writing was a drawing of a head with a ponytail with a round being fired from a handgun into the head. Okay, did his parents know about the writings? If they did, I'm sure at this point, they're gonna deny that they knew. But there's more that was happening in Ethan's life than the writings. Ethan had begun torturing animals. He had collected heads of rodents that were found in his home. He had also placed a bird head in a jar and brought it to the school, and then he left it in the bathroom for others to find. Ethan also had a social media account with his screen name as Black Death, and his profile picture is of a satanic-looking man. You guys, it's definitely not Ethan. I don't know if it's somebody real, but it's a guy that looks... Pretty satanic. And for the second episode in a row, I'm going to reference Black Friday. For Americans, it's the biggest in-person shopping day, but other countries have started to adopt this day as well. And on that Black Friday in 2021, James took his son and purchased Ethan a Sig Sauer 9mm handgun. On his Instagram account, Ethan posted a picture of his hand holding the gun with the caption, just got my new beauty today ask any questions i will answer but it wasn't just ethan that seemed thrilled with the purchase jennifer posted on social media the very next day that her and ethan were at a shooting range and she wrote mom and sunday testing out his new christmas present all right then on monday this is the day before the shooting a teacher noticed that ethan was searching for ammunition on his phone during class Well, the teacher alerted school authorities, and a school official left a voicemail for Jennifer about Ethan's concerning behavior. Well, Jennifer never returned the phone call to the school, but she did send a text message to her son that read, LOL, I'm not mad. You have to learn not to get caught. Well, that Monday night, Ethan recorded an audio manifesto where he states his name and age and then declares he will be the next school shooter. He said he had thought about it a lot and that he couldn't stop thinking about it. And because of that, he would try to shoot as many people as possible. Then at the end of the audio recording, he says, There's no voices in my head. The voices are me. That's what people call the demons. There are no demons. I am the demon. Well, that following morning, Ethan's in class drawing on his math assignment. On one part of the assignment, there's a gun drawing with the words, the thoughts won't stop. He's also drawn a picture of a man with a gun. And then there's a picture of a single bullet with the words, blood everywhere, written above it. Again, an alert teacher steps in and she takes a picture of the assignment and she sends it to school officials. Well, at this point, Ethan's called to the administrator's office. And by now, Ethan has scribbled through some of the drawings, but to be honest, you can still tell what the drawings are. Well, a school counselor, she takes a picture of that math assignment and she sends it to Jennifer via text. She also asks Jennifer to come to the school for a meeting. Now, according to Click on Detroit, some negotiating back and forth between Jennifer and the counselor occurred, but Jennifer eventually relented and her and her husband came to the school. While waiting for his parents to arrive, Ethan told that counselor he could see how the drawings looked bad, but that he wasn't going to hurt himself or others. When his parents arrived, the meeting wasn't friendly. The school counselor said James and Jennifer didn't really even show any care for Ethan, even though the school counselor is so concerned that Ethan's going to hurt himself. Now, the counselor asked that Ethan receive mental health counseling that very day but Jennifer said that that wouldn't be possible since the two needed to return to their jobs. Well, an agreement was eventually struck that Ethan would receive mental health care within 48 hours, but his parents said they were leaving their son at school for the day. Then, according to the counselor, Jennifer abruptly said, are we done? And they got up and left. Now, while all of this is happening, Ethan has a gun and ammunition in his backpack And no one searches the backpack. Ethan then returns to class. And the nightmare begins two hours later. At 12.51 that day, Ethan is seen walking into the bathroom with his backpack. Less than a minute expires and then Ethan exits the bathroom, wielding the 9mm handgun. And he begins firing at students who are walking the hallways, transitioning from one class period to another, Of course, students scattered and fled. But Ethan just systematically walks along the hallway, firing into classrooms. He then enters another bathroom and fires more shots. Within five minutes, Ethan was taken into custody, unharmed by a first responder and the school resource officer. He still had seven rounds of ammunition in his loaded gun, as well as two 15-round magazines on his body. Four people died as a result of Ethan's murder spree. 16-year-old Tate Meyer, 14-year-old Hannah St. Juliana, 17-year-old Madison Baldwin, and 17-year-old Justin Schilling. Now six other students and one teacher were injured from the 30 rounds that Ethan had fired. So much of this is disturbing, but this text sent by Ethan's mother just exemplifies how this could have been stopped. At 1.22 on that horrific Tuesday, that's just a half hour after Ethan fires the first shot, Jennifer is alerted, along with hundreds of other parents, that a school shooting has occurred at Oxford High. Her first response? She sends a text to her son that says, Ethan, don't do it. She knew. She knew what her son was capable of. And then, 15 minutes later, Ethan's dad calls 911 and reports that a gun is missing from the Crumley home. He also tells the dispatcher that he thinks his son is the mass shooter. He knew. He knew what his son was capable of. Now, there's so much more to these parents. But we need to get to Ethan's sentencing for the murders and injury that he caused. But quickly, I'm going to give you an update on the parents. Following the shooting, they went on the run for several hours. They were finally found in a downtown office building and arrested by authorities and charged with manslaughter for not locking up the gun and for not getting help for their clearly compromised child. Both are still in jail awaiting their trials and obviously neither one could be present on Friday when their son was sentenced. Doesn't that just truly explain Ethan's 17 years of life? His parents were not there for him. Now, before Friday's sentencing, Ethan had already pled guilty to 24 charges that included murder and terrorism, but this was a day that needed to happen. The hearing took seven hours where parents of Ethan's victims shared their heart-wrenching testimony about what they had endured during that time tate meyer's father buck said there is no joy in life now that tate is dead he said he and his wife are trying to just figure out how to save their marriage and family now that the joy and love are gone steve saint juliana okay that's hannah's father he said that there can be no forgiveness and no rehabilitation and justin Schilling's father craig turned to the judge and said I'm going to ask you to lock this son of a bitch up for the rest of his pathetic life. Now, Judge Rowe kindly acknowledged each parent's pain after each parent spoke, which meant he acknowledged it multiple times. He also said that Ethan has an obsession with violence and that his alleged mental illness did not interfere with his ability to extensively plan this attack for months and then to carry it out. Ethan was allowed to speak during the sentencing, and he said the following, any sentence that they ask for, I ask that you do impose it on me. I want them to be happy. I do want them to feel safe and secure. I don't want them to worry another day. I am a really bad person. I have done terrible things that no one should ever do. Okay, in Michigan, Ethan could be charged as an adult, even though he was 15 years old when the murders occurred, but he could not receive the death penalty in this case. And the judge gave Ethan the harshest penalty possible. He will serve life without parole. For most of the sentencing, Ethan sat with his head bowed, rarely raising to look at those testifying. Except, On one occasion, when his female classmate was giving her impact statement, she said the following, "'After today, I will live my life. You will go behind bars, and I will never have to see your face again. You are a waste of space. I'm not sorry to say that. You're not special. You don't have a divine right. You're just an insecure, weak, fragile, insecure boy who wouldn't deal with his problems.' Your name will never be said. Now the rest of us are left with pieces, and I'm going to ask you one more time to please look at me. It was then that Ethan raised his head and briefly looked at the young woman before lowering his head again. Let's remember the victims. Tate Meyer loved the holidays and was eagerly looking forward to Christmas where he could decorate the tree and make cookies with his mom. He was a wrestler and a football player at Oxford, who was a leader on and off the field and mat. He is survived by his two brothers, his parents, his girlfriend, Brady, and his dog, Cash. Hannah St. Juliana was remembered as a girl with a zest to learn everything that interested her. She played on the volleyball and basketball teams and always had the perfect manicure, She had a carefully curated 10-hour Christmas music playlist, and she would make her own jewelry and could usually be found wearing funny socks. Madison Baldwin was an artist who loved to draw, read, and write. Her tremendous grades and accomplishments had already led her to receiving acceptance into several colleges, some of those acceptances with full scholarships. And Justin Schilling, well, he was the smart kid with the huge smile. He was part of the Oxford School District's Baccalaureate program, and he'd received scholarship awards. He worked three jobs all while holding down amazing grades. His boss at Anita's Kitchen said that Justin was an exemplary employee who was simply a pleasure to be around. I truly hope the sentencing on Friday was the day the victims could start anew, maybe find that limited piece that is available to them. I'll keep you updated on Ethan's parents and if they're found guilty of their crimes. And this bizarre story out of Atlanta, two off-duty cops from New York and two history buffs from Utah thwarted the burning of Martin Luther King Jr.'s childhood home on Thursday. So here's how it all went down, and I learned some things here. That 128-year-old home is part of the national park system. It's actually patrolled by park employees, and you can tour the home Monday through Saturday during daytime hours as part of several other Martin Luther King Jr. related facilities like the Ebenezer Baptist Church and the grave sites of Dr. and Mrs. King and Freedom Hall. In fact, the police chief called MLK Jr.'s childhood home the crown jewel of the city. Well, on Thursday evening, Lanisha Chantrice Henderson, in front of tourists that were still outside the home, walked onto the porch with a red gas can and attempted to dump the liquid on the wood structure. When she could not get the gas to pour from the nozzle, she removed the cap and poured the liquid directly onto the window frames and the porch floor. When one of the Utah visitors saw her pull a lighter from her pocket, he stepped in and took action. He told her she couldn't burn the home, and he blocked her from lighting the doused areas on fire. It was then that the two off-duty police officers held her down until police could arrive. She was arrested and charged with criminal attempt to commit arson and interference with government property. Now, no motive has been provided for a black woman attempting to burn the home of what could easily be called the most effective and relevant black leader in American history. And the Martin Luther King Jr. Center released a statement that, of course, is filled with grace. They said they thanked the brave individuals and Good Samaritans for their intervention and also the quick response of the local law enforcement. They also said their prayers are with the individual who allegedly committed the criminal act. Now, Lanisha is a military veteran who served in the Navy, and she reportedly earned medals for good conduct while enlisted. Lanisha's father did tell WSB TV that he had been trying to find his daughter for two days prior to her being arrested for the potential arson. Her last post on social media did show a tarot card with an image of Donald Trump perched on top of the world. Okay, that's his second appearance in today's episode. You guys, this world's getting so weird. Police did take Lanisha to the hospital for a mental evaluation before transporting her to jail. Now, I'm experiencing a collective agreement with the Martin Luther King Jr. Center, and I'm sure you agree. We're so grateful that that historic home was preserved. And let's finish with this story out of Parma, Ohio, where a judge handed down a very creative and unusual sentence in a very, very unnecessary crime. Now, you might've seen these viral videos when they surfaced online back in September, but here's how the evening played out. 39-year-old mother of four, Rosemary Hain, was getting dinner at a Chipotle restaurant when she was not satisfied with the food she received. Now, videos show her cutting in front of other customers and arguing with the Chipotle worker named Emily Russell. After more than a minute of arguing, Rosemary takes her burrito bowl and slams it into the face of Emily. And Emily's stunned, understandably, and Rosemary begins to storm out of the establishment, yelling obscenities the whole time. Before she makes it to the door, an older woman chases her down saying, you can't do that. And the two begin tussling in the vestibule of the restaurant before Rosemary leaves, and then you can hear someone shouting, call 911. Well, last week, Rosemary received her sentence for assault charges because of launching the food at Emily. And during the sentencing, Rosemary was allowed to speak, where she told Emily, the Chipotle worker, that she was sorry for her actions. But then she went on to justify her actions by saying the food she was given looked disgusting. She told the judge that if she showed him how the food looked on that night and then also how the food looked on a subsequent visit a week later, that he would think it was disgusting. So I guess this is a new version of returning to the scene of the crime. She went back to the same restaurant after acting that way just a week earlier? Well, Judge Timothy Gilligan told Rosemary that her everyday behavior was not the real housewives of Parma and that she could not act that way. He also said, I bet you're not going to be happy with the food you're going to get in jail. The judge sentenced her to 100 days in lockup, but he then offered her a deal in hopes to teach Rosemary some empathy. Judge Gilligan said he would give her 60 days served and reduce her sentence to 90 days in jail if she agreed to work at least 20 hours a week at a fast food restaurant for two months. Well, Rosemary agreed, and she's now searching for a job to fulfill her on-the-job training portion of her punishment. So what happened to Emily, who had worked at Chipotle for four years before the incident? Well, she quit about a month after the burrito hurling because she had never been contacted by Chipotle about the crime. You guys, she also deserves Employee of the Month because on that night, she finished the four remaining hours of her shift. Now, following the sentence, Emily said she was relieved that the judge took the crime seriously. And she said Rosemary is lucky to only work 20 hours a week because Emily said she had weeks where she worked 65 hours. Well, Chipotle in a statement said that the health and safety of their employees is their greatest priority and that they were pleased to see justice served for an individual that does not treat their team members with the respect that they deserve. You guys, I've got nothing here. Your bad day will never constitute you throwing hot rice and beans and meat on someone. I really, truly hope this judge's, what some may call a brilliant idea, that this judge's idea can help Rosemary learn that empathy by walking in Emily's shoes for a day. Well, that's your Monday episode of Rise and Crime. Before you leave, could you hit that like button if you're listening on YouTube or maybe give Rise and Crime a follow or even better, subscribe for downloads. And five-star reviews are incredibly awesome and free during this time of giving. Thanks for being here with me. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules and keep safe out there. This is the story of the one.